Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I either interview somebody or I uh, tell you everything you need to know about an individual bird species. Today, I'm doing the latter. I'm going to be talking about the bar-tailed godwit. This episode was suggested to me by a couple people. And uh, I'm really excited to do it about the bird with the longest migration. Um, I'm recording right now from First Landing State Park, where I've recorded a lot of times. Usually I'm deep in the woods when I record here, but uh, actually now I'm right by the water. Because as we'll learn, bar-tailed godwits are usually found in estuaries. So I'm here on like a little tributary of the Broad Bay. Um, won't see any bar-tailed godwits, um, but might see some other like water bird species. Mostly it's like, you know, blue herons and, you know, different duck species back here. I heard a kingfisher a moment ago, um, some cormorants hanging out on a log. Um, but who knows, we might get surprised and uh, some gulls might fly by or something, or I might see a little, you know, sandpiper running up and down uh, the shore here. Um, huge, huge shout out to Jose for this episode's cover art. Um, he also made this sick animated GIF um, that I'm going to upload to the Dirty Bird Podcast YouTube page with a recording of this episode. Check out Jose's Instagram page, Jose to my friends. Um, you know, I'm going to tag him in, in my Instagram post for this episode. Um, that's Jose to my friends with the number two. Um, his Instagram page, he showcases some of his amazing artwork. Thanks so much, Jose. And also a shout out to Daisy, who wrote a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Guys, guys, reviews are so important to help other people find the show. Please, please, please write a review. And thank you so much, Daisy. Um, her review, she says, My favorite podcast, Dr. John, is my David Attenborough. Thank you so much for the great content. Uh, <laughs> I guess I am a little David Attenborough sitting here in First Landing State Park observing the cormorants. That's a terrible, terrible British accent. Uh, <laughs> uh, You'll probably hear a little bit more, oh, sick, hawk just flew over. You'll probably hear a little bit more um, traffic noise than usual in my episodes, you know, since I'm recording near the water, there's, you know, it's Virginia, there's always a road uh, near the water around here. So anyways, let's launch into it. I was hoping maybe there would be some nice like little waves, you know, <laughs> that would pick up. But it is a very calm morning right now, um, which I guess is a good thing because there's, there's not much wind. 
Um, all right, well, let's launch into it. Um, so bar-tailed godwit. Um, the bar-tailed part of the name is pretty self-explanatory. They have <laughs> black bars on their tails. Um, but godwit is kind of a weird word. So, you know, I was looking up the origin for the word godwit. Um, it's a little bit unclear. It first appears in English in the 1400s. And likely it's like onomatopoeic. It's an imitation of the bird's call. Um, there's also a theory that it's a combination of the words good and white. Uh, godwit, good white, uh, meaning good creature. Um, <laughs> it seems like a bit of a stretch. Um, apparently, historically, godwits were a delicacy in England. Um, so maybe they were called good whites, like referring to how good <laughs> and tasty they were. But probably more likely it's because it's of their call. Their scientific name is Lamosa laponica. Uh, that genus name, Lamosa, means muddy. It comes from the Latin word limus for mud. Um, and that's where you're usually going to find these birds that are wading around in the mud on the shoreline, you know, in an estuary, probing down with their bill and looking for food. Laponica is just a Latinization of Lapland, um, which is a region of Finland. Um, I'm not sure exactly why Lapland got tagged onto this bird. Um, it certainly can be seen in that area. And maybe the guy who came up with the scientific name, a dude named Mathurin Jacques Brisson, um, first observed them there in Lapland. Um, not too far away from Finland is the Netherlands, where the bar-tailed godwit is the national bird. The genus Limosa contains all four of the godwit species, the bar-tailed, black-tailed, marbled, and Hudsonian godwits. They're all wading birds and can be found alongside other weirdly named wading birds like curlews, dowitchers, and wimbrels. There's a lot of wading bird species and they all kind of look alike. Um, I've, also, I've always wondered if they have such weird names just to kind of help, you know, differentiate them in your mind. Like when you hear something called a, a wimbrel, like that kind of sticks out versus just like a long-legged shorebird. And if you see a bar-tailed godwit, you'll probably be seeing it alongside a lot of sort of similar looking birds um, on the shore. Um, the godwit is about the size of a chicken, except picture a chicken on like long legs with a long bill. Um, bar-tailed godwits have long legs like most wading birds, but not as long as some other shore birds like stilts and avocets. Um, its most distinctive feature is its long, relatively thick bill, which is bicolored, uh, meaning it's lighter at the base, um, but comes black about halfway through. Um, and the bill is ever so slightly curved upwards. Um, and that's a, that's a big thing to kind of tell it apart from uh, some of the other similarly sized wading birds. There's a male cardinal singing like right above me. In the breeding season, uh, males have a really rich, red, rusty color to their head and underbelly with flecks of white and brown on their back. Females have some color too, but it's a much more pale orange. In the non-breeding season, they replace their red with white, and their white belly is actually a good way to differentiate them from their close cousin, the darker-bellied black-tailed godwit, during the non-breeding season.
You don't really see the bar tail that gives this bird its name unless it's in flight. Um, and then you'll notice it has this cute little white rump with its distinctly black barred tail. Um, and that's a good way to tell it from the uh, black-tailed godwit also. Interestingly, it has another look-alike that's not as closely related, um, the Asian Dowager. The Asian Dowager has really similar red coloring to its plumage in the breeding season, and also a similar build to the bar-tailed godwit. However, Dowagers are smaller, and they have a really distinctive feeding pattern. Um, instead of doing probes like godwits do, just kind of like stabbing their bill down into the mud, Dowagers do this repeated jam underwater. Um, it's been described as looking like they're trying to sew yarn under the water. So that's a really good way, you know, if you're in overlapping territory, the Asian Dowager and the bar-tailed godwit to tell them apart. And finally, a sure-fired way to tell them apart is to listen for their call. Um, the Dowager call is described as a yelp. Versus the Godwit call. Um, males and females of bar-tailed godwits are, uh, you know, distinctly different. Um, they're kind of hard to tell apart when you just see, like, one of them. Um, but, um, you know, in breeding plumage, of course, the female is going to be more of, like, a dull orange versus the male has a, a pretty pretty nice, like, rusty red to him. Um, that's pretty distinctive. But in non-breeding season, the best way is to see a male and female side by side because the male is going to be smaller and have a shorter bill than the females. There are five subspecies of the bar-tailed godwits, and so there's some morphological differences in color between those subspecies, bill length, wing length, and overall size. Uh, I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty of that. Bar-tailed godwits breed in North Eurasia and Alaska. Um, they prefer habitats with marshy lowland moss, shrub tundra, and swampy heathlands. Um, really, they're you know when they breed, they're up in the Arctic areas, and we'll uh, we'll talk about why they do that and and, and get into that more in the breeding section. Um, Non-breeding seasons, they can be found in Europe, coastal Africa, South Asia, and Oceania, where they prefer more intertidal habitats such as mudflats, sandbars, sandy beaches, estuaries, and mangrove lagoons. The five subspecies all have specific and distinct breeding, refueling, and wintering grounds. Um, sometimes one subspecies will end up mixed up with another subspecies um, outside its normal range. You know, this makes real bird nerds super excited. Um, that's the nitty-gritty of birding when you can, you know, tell a subspecies apart. That's incredible. Um, these refueling grounds that they stop at during their migrations are tidal zones. Um, and they're really important for them to be able to complete the epic long-distance migrations that they do. I mean, thousands and thousands of miles. We'll, we'll dig into it uh, in a little bit. Um, these are predetermined locations chosen by bar-tailed godwits due to their high abundance and reliability of food. Um, however, sometimes bad weather conditions or starting the migration with less body mass will force bar-tailed godwits to make emergency stops to refuel at less energetically effective tidal zones. And again, this makes people super excited too, like, oh my god, this year, godwits, they're here! Um, and, and, you know, that makes people go crazy and run out with their binoculars and blow up the, you know, the birding apps. <laughs> 
Um, a quick side note, I did find a study out of Poland that observed higher numbers of bar-tailed godwits using emergency stopover sites in the Gulf of Gdansk um, in a three-year cycle that may be correlated with the three-year population boom and bust cycle of lemmings. So you've probably heard about the you know boom and bust cycle of lemmings, um, that three-year cycle, because on bust years, um, it'll force uh, predatory birds like snowy owls to go you know way more south than their normal range, uh, which makes birders super excited. Like you've probably seen on the internet, like people will drive hundreds of miles to come see this snowy owl that's like perched on somebody's roof. Um, and so apparently that lemming cycle, like you know, it doesn't just affect you know the birds that eat lemmings. It like also um, uh, has like trickle down effects, I guess, on on other birds, even like you know uh, marine birds uh, like the uh, godwits. And I don't know if this is picking it up, but someone's weed whacking nearby. <laughs> uh, oh well, this is what I get for recording outside. You really realize just how much human noise there is out there, you know, when you start trying to record a podcast outside. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about their migration, the big thing that makes these birds so, so, so special. They are termed extreme endurance migrators because they will perform these migratory flights that are thousands and thousands of miles, sometimes totally nonstop. Um, if you know any endurance athletes, uh, those maniacs who run like 50 or 100 mile races, um, like my buddy Zach, shout out, <laughs> you know that they're pretty intense and remarkable. Um, Bar-tailed godwits are no different. Uh, during their migrations, they fly at an estimated 57 kilometers an hour, um, sometimes faster or slower depending on the wind conditions during their migration. Like any athlete knows, before you do some big, strenuous sport, you have to fuel up and carbo-load. Uh, that's exactly what bar-tailed godwits do uh, when they're on their way to their breeding or non-breeding grounds, um, or when they're at their layover sites. They just eat, 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 and attempt to gain back um, fat and protein to prepare for their next flight. All this extra fat and muscle has weight to it, though, when they build it up. Um, so to compensate for this, organs that bar-tailed godwits won't need to use during their migration, such as the liver, intestines, and kidneys, will atrophy, um, you know, like right before, in, in the days before they go take off on their flight. Um, they'll shrink in size. In fact, even though they've increased their body fat content from around 17% to 42 or even as high as 55% fat, um, that's nuts, um, their weight actually only goes up by a few grams. 50% um, fat is insane. Uh, I did some rough calculations trying to convert this over to BMI in humans. Um, of course, bird and human bodies are very different, but roughly that equivalates to a BMI of 57 in a human. Uh, normal BMI range is 20 to 25. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe I take back comparing godwits to like, you know, uh, like extreme marathon runners. Uh, maybe they're more like sumo wrestlers of the bird world. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so they bulk up on fat and protein, uh, you know, build up their muscles, build up their fat stores. And uh, right before they take off, they just shrink like all the organs that they're not going to need. The kidneys, the liver, the, you know, the gut, like it just all shrivels up so that they are optimized for this flight. 
their heart and breast muscle um, increase in size in preparation for their flight. Um, and, you know, that makes sense. Their breast muscles are going to be using for flapping their wings and their heart. You know, it's got to be pumping pretty good um, while they're flying. Um, also, a really cool thing is that their red blood cells actually increase in number prior to migration. Um, this, um, I'm kind of comparing it to, you know how you've heard that like, athletes will go to high altitudes, like they'll go to Denver to train before they go compete at like a lower altitude. This is because when they're up at the higher altitudes, there's, you know, less oxygen concentration in the air. So their body is forced to produce more red blood cells. And then when they go to a lower altitude, they almost have like a, you know, a little bit of a, an extra edge. Um, they're able to like carry more oxygen. Um, so Bartel Gawitz, you know, the same thing happens. The oxygen-carrying uh, molecule hemoglobin um, increases um, in, in their blood. Um, they incre it increases from um, 15, uh, which is in normal range, to um, 17. Uh, this is based on a study I read conducted out of the Wadden Sea in the Netherlands in 2002. Um, a lot of studies are conducted on, on Bartel Gawitz out of the Wadden Sea, so that'll pop up a lot. Um, 17 is pretty high. If I had a patient with a hemoglobin that high, I'd say they have something called polycythemia um, and work them up for stuff like, you know, like bone marrow disorders. Um, but this increased hemoglobin um, not only delivers more oxygen to Godwit's body tissues during their strenuous migration, but it also sort of like tops them off um, before their migration. Um, as we'll talk about in a second, the migration is literally a near-death experience for bar-tailed godwits, and lots of red blood cells are just destroyed, you know, during the extreme physical demands of flying thousands and thousands of miles. So they're almost like having like some extra blood, you know, because they know they're going to like lose a lot um, during this migration. The five different subspecies, kind of as I said before, they all have different migrations, um, but I'm going to just focus on a couple of the subspecies, and specifically the subspecies that has the longest migration. The subspecies that breeds in northern Europe and Siberia has kind of an interesting migration because the northern Europe birds will fly to western Europe um, to winter, while the Siberian ones fly all the way to West Africa. So this is kind of interesting because, you know, the Northern Europe ones just make kind of a short trip to Western Europe, while the ones flying further from Siberia fly all the way to West Africa. Um, this is termed leapfrog migration. Um, I talked about it in the bittern episode also. It's, it's kind of a weird, you know, strategy by birds. You'd think they would all kind of migrate the same distance, but, you know, no, like the ones traveling farthest to, from farthest away end up doing the, the longer migration to fly over and not to compete with, um, you know, the, the ones that are already set up shop. But the subspecies that's the real endurance athletes um, are the subspecies that perform the longest migration of any bird, flying 29,000 kilometers round trip in three nonstop flights. Um, I'll mostly focus on describing their migration. They are called Lamosa Laponica Bowery, um, and it's super dramatic. Twice a year, this population, estimated at around 120,000 birds, will migrate from breeding grounds in Alaska to wintering grounds in New Zealand and eastern Australia in one non-stop flight. On the way back, though, they will break up the trip a bit and stop in the Yellow Sea of China to refuel. This is a general rule, though. Um, remember how I said earlier, some individual godwits will need to make emergency stops if the weather turns sour or their bodies just can't keep up.
they cross a lot of different ecosystems when they're going from Arctic to temperate to tropical and back again. Um, they also cross some pretty extreme wind zones. Um, the three big wind zones they cross are the polar easterlies, the westerlies, and the trade winds. If you've ever watched the movie Master and Commander, uh, you've probably heard these winds mentioned. Um, they're a godsend to sailors, you know, back when wind power was the major way to sail the sea. Uh, the bar-tailed godwits, you know, intimately know these winds too and, and use them to help them on their migration. Oh, <laughs> listen to those frogs a-peeping. Um, the wind can be good and bad when you're a migrating bird. Um, it can help you gain altitude and help push you along, or it can be blowing against you um, or cause storms and rainfall. Also, um, if those winds aren't enough to deal with, there's also weather phenomenon like monsoons and El Nino and La Nina, um, which creates some pretty unpredictable environments out there on the uh, Pacific. Another quick comment on altitude, um, choosing the right altitude is also really important for energy and water balance. The higher you go, the cooler it is, and the less water the body loses through evaporation. However, higher altitudes also have a lower air pressure, and you need to flap more to produce the same amount of lift. Godwits are really good about finding the sweet spot where it all evens out. Bartailed godwits do migrate in flocks, um, but these flocks leave at different times and sometimes are very small, only comprising three birds. Um, but there's some complex social cues involved in deciding when to depart, who you're going to follow, what direction to choose, what altitude to fly at. So many decisions for these birds to make. It's thousands and thousands of years of selective pressure on individuals that has made their extremely long migration possible. When flying in flux, they will sometimes adapt that classic aerodynamic V formation or fly in echelon. Um, and, you know, this helps to reduce wind drag on individuals and, and just improve their efficiency. Um, during this long flight, though, it's not at all unusual for individuals to get separated from their flock and, you know, end up just traveling it solo. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, while I'm talking about altitude, let me just add this fact in here. Um, sometimes they are flying really, really high up in the air. Um, I didn't see a max altitude for bar-tailed godwits, but that sister species, the black-tailed godwit, um, they've been clocked flying up to 6,000 meters or about 18,000 feet high in the air. Um, this is about half the cruising altitude of a passenger aircraft. Other birds have been observed flying at much higher altitudes, but I mean, still, this is impressive. Bar-tailed godwits that leave for migration when the wind is in their favor tend to have the most favorable wind conditions during their migration. So reading and reacting to the winds right before they take off from their, you know, breeding or non-breeding grounds or refueling grounds, wherever they're at, like they're reading the wind. And when the wind's good, that's the time to take off because it predicts that the wind will probably good for the whole of their migration. Um, they also usually depart for migration in the late afternoon. Um, this is likely to avoid predators like hawks, um, you know, because they're leaving, it's like dusk or night while they're flying over land, um, and so that reduces the risk that they're going to be um, predated on. Their non-breeding grounds in New Zealand or eastern Australia, they'll leave those in mid-March to early April and fly about 10,000 kilometers to the Yellow Sea. Um, either through just evolution or the general smarts of these birds. Um, this migration timing is perfect because it's paired with when there's a decrease in cyclone activity over the Tasman Sea near New Zealand. 
They refuel for five to seven weeks um, in the Yellow Sea before setting off for their breeding grounds in Alaska, which is a journey of about 4,500 kilometers. And then they're in Alaska, you know, breeding and everything. Um, but come late August, early October, these bartail gawits, time to make that epic migration around 13,000 kilometers from Alaska to, you know, New Zealand, Eastern Australia. And they do this in a straight course across the Pacific Ocean, flying at around 57 kilometers an hour. And it takes them 11 days, nonstop. Um, imagine running for 11 days straight. I mean, it's impossible. I can't imagine these guys flying for 11 days straight. That's so cool. Um, this timing when they leave Alaska is actually paired with a time of increased cyclone intensity and frequency. Um, so it's super important that the bar-tailed gawits interpret the wind and weather conditions correctly. It's likely that gawits have some kind of sensory mechanism to, you know, detect like, uh, air pressure or something like that. Um, we just don't know what it is yet. Um, when you look at the radio tracked flight paths of Godwitz, um, they differ from year to year and from individual to individual. Uh, a lot of this is due to weather conditions, not just bar-tailed Godwitz avoiding bad weather, but actually also using it to their advantage. Sometimes they'll actually use like big storms like cyclones to, you know, get on the side where the wind is going to be pushing in their favor. It really shows what masters of migration they are. Like, storms aren't just an obstacle to them. They're a potential opportunity. Like I said, sometimes they will need to make emergency stops. Um, radio tracking has shown that not all Godwits fly nonstop from Alaska to New Zealand. Um, rarely, sometimes they'll stop at a Pacific island to rest. Um, there have been fossils of bar-tailed Godwits found in caves on the Fiji island of Vadulele. Um, presumably from a bar-tailed godwit that was eaten by a barn owl um, and brought to its cave. Um, godwits know the predictable westerly and trade winds by heart. Um, on their migration from Alaska to New Zealand, many godwits will actually drift significantly to the east to avoid fighting against the westerly winds. Um, and then they'll pick up the southeast blowing trade winds to help them to help blow them towards New Zealand. So instead of going in a straight line, you know, from Alaska to New Zealand, they'll kind of take a little bit of a roundabout way so they don't have to fight the winds and that they can pick up the wind and just let it blow them into New Zealand. You know, so awesome. It, like, yeah, it makes the trip longer, but, you know, uh, I guess a little easier. You know, you don't have to fight the wind. Go with the flow. And the fact that they can, you know, uh, just make these decisions like, oh, the wind's not right. I'm going to, you know, go fly this way. Um, it leads to us speculating like, so how, you know, when they make these, you know, decisions to go fly this way instead, like how do they know that they're still going in the right direction? Like how do they navigate? Um, the short answer is we don't know. Um, after listening to my pigeon episode, you might say, well, they use the Earth's magnetic field, of course, the way pigeons do. Um, but apparently the Pacific Ocean um, doesn't have the same magnetic field mapping as seen in other areas. And also the magnetic field is weakest at the equator, um, which many bar-tailed godwits cross in their migrations. So even if they do use the Earth's magnetic field, um, like it, they're only using it as a supplementary, supplementary navigational tool. Um, they can't use it, you know, totally for their night navigation. Um, there's suggestions that they use landmarks and dead reckoning, as well as really subtle auditory cues called infrasound. 
Um, infrasound comes from like uh, you know very like deep sounds like waves crashing on a distant shoreline or wind blowing around mountain ranges uh, they may like be able to hear that and use that to kind of map map themselves um, during their flights uh, just <laughs> incredible and shows how much more we need to learn about these birds as you'd expect not all godwits make it through their epic migration uh, they might die from exposure starvation predation injury and exhaustion uh, just to demonstrate how taxing the flight is, um, I read a study from 1990 um, out of the Netherlands by a guy, Thunius Piersma um, and Jukema, um, that looked at how much energy and nutrients were lost during uh, a 60-hour, 4,300-kilometer flight of the Bartiald Gawits from Bank de Arguin on the west coast of Africa to the Wadden Sea of Netherlands. Um, they found that females lost an average of 3,800 kilojoules of energy, um, while the smaller males lost 3,100 kilojoules. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time trying to figure out just how much energy a kilojoule is. Um, and uh, I read a piece of a textbook, a biochem textbook from Oxford, um, <laughs> that tried to equate it. And it takes one kilojoule to lift an elephant one inch. So... They lost 3,800 kilojoules of energy uh, using that math. Um, female godwits are lifting elephants 300 feet into the air every time they migrate from Africa to the Netherlands. I'm sure that's, you know, <laughs> some wrong math there, but no, I like my analogy. They are burning 300 foot in the air elephant amount of energy every time they migrate. Um, in this same flight, um, females lost 178 grams of body weight. Males lost 136 grams. Um, given that the average male was starting around 320 grams and lost 136 grams, that means they lose 42% of their body mass um, during migration. Like, that's insane. Um, I mean, it shows like just how strenuous this is. You know, they're, they're losing nearly half their weight. 50% of this loss was determined to be from fat stores, while the other 50% came from non-fat sources, uh, such as muscle tissue. Um, the fact that they're burning through their muscle tissue as well as fat uh, really suggests, you know, that they're in starvation mode when they're making their migration. Um, it's insane that they put themselves through this, you know, brutal physical challenge twice every year. The burning of the muscle tissue doesn't just produce energy, though. It's also likely a critical source of water for godwits. Um, remember, these birds are flying nonstop for over a week, no water breaks. Um, the breakdown of protein produces six times more water than the breakdown of fat. Um, so godwits have a very efficient system for maintaining good hydration. Um, even though they're near starvation at the end of their migration, um, researchers consistently find that they have no signs of dehydration. Some of these radio tracking studies are really cool to read because they also monitor like wind and weather conditions, um, and it can create pretty dramatic stories of the migration of these birds. Ooh, right when I talk about wind, a, a big breeze blows through. <laughs> it's like it heard me. Um, one individual named H4, um, who had just started on her journey flying from Alaska to New Zealand, became stuck between a cyclone and a high pressure system and she had no choice but to battle out against the strong headwinds. I like that this wind is blowing while I'm telling this story. Um, and, and she did complete her migration, but you know, it was just like when the researchers looked at the data, like you could just really feel for this bird that like had no choice. She can't go around it. She's just got to battle right through it.
Uh, I read another account of an unlucky individual named E8 that encountered strong headwinds on her way to Alaska, just over the Bering Sea, and she had to abort her migration and instead land in Russia. This wasn't E8's fault. Um, when she departed the Yellow Sea, conditions were perfect, so like she read the winds right. Um, but then a fast-moving cyclone actually caught up to her and then merged with a typhoon <laughs> to create a superstorm. This is just like that movie Perfect Storm or something like the cyclone fuses with a typhoon to produce a cyclophoon or <laughs> something. Um, E8 did eventually reach Alaska, but either because she was so late or weakened from her, her ordeal, um, she did not breathe that season. So I hope that really, you know, paints a picture on just how epic these migrations are for these birds. I mean, they're just so freaking cool. Um, I, I can't imagine being these birds and, you know, two times a year you're like doing these these migrations basically your whole life is is based around the breeding and the migrations like i i do know some people you know that are extreme athletes and they're almost always you know training i'm sure you know people like this too they're always training for the next race you know that's what the godwits are except uh before each race they're you know basically becoming morbidly obese <laughs> Um, so let's talk about their, you know, some cool anatomy on them and some other cool facts. Um, part of the reason why bar-tailed goblets are such amazing migrators is due to their aerodynamics. Uh, that same study I referenced earlier by, um, Thunius Piersma and Jup Jukema, I think I just like saying their names, um, also commented on the aerodynamics of bar-tailed godwits. Uh, here I need to pause a moment and talk about some technical flying terms. Uh, if you've listened to my vulture episode, you know all about wing loading, uh, the total mass of an animal divided by its wing area. The lower the mass and the higher the wing area, the higher the number of the wing load will be. And a higher wing load means the animal doesn't need much speed to stay airborne. Um, so like, you know, picture a very light animal with really big wings. It kind of makes sense that it's, uh, it doesn't need much speed to fly up into the air. But we're actually going to talk about a different aerodynamic property. It's called wing aspect ratio. Um, wing aspect ratio is the length of the wings divided by their width. So this is like long narrow wings versus short broad wings. So long narrow wings um, result in what's called a high aspect ratio, uh, while short broad wings result in low aspect ratios. So high aspect ratios, those long narrow wings, produce more lift and are good for long sustained flights while low aspect ratios are highly maneuverable. Um, so think of like the stubby thick wings of a hawk, you know, it's gotta like, you know, weave through trees or make very quick turns to catch prey. So, you know, that's why they have the low wing aspect ratio. Um, Bartailed godwits, it, it's not gonna surprise you, they have long narrow wings with a high aspect ratio of nine that helps them generate lift and allow for long sustained flight. Um, this is actually the same wing aspect ratio as swifts and swallows. Um, you know, swifts and swallows, they look like jet aircraft when they're flying with those long pointed wings, and uh, bar-tailed godwits are, are no different. Um, bar-tailed godwits also molt their feathers twice a year, um, once in the breeding ground to replace um, their bright breeding plumage with their more dull winter coats, and also once on their non-breeding grounds where males and females were don the reddish uh, coloring to their plumage again. There's also evidence that at stopover sites during migration, um, particularly fat and fit individuals will perform a tune-up molt on their feathers um, that had been damaged by the first leg of their journey. 
Um, our long-distance Bowery Godwits seem to leave their non-breeding grounds in New Zealand not fully molted um, and finish their full breeding molt um, when they stop over in the Yellow Sea. Um, probably a you know a pretty good strategy. Like molting takes a lot of energy, so you know they're like, eh, I'll just do a little partial one, you know, just my important ones. And then when they're on the Yellow Sea, they're refueling. They've you know they've gotten the 10,000 kilometers behind them, only like 4,500 kilometers left to go. So then they finish the molt. Um, another little fact is during windy days, bar-tailed godwits are more likely to form into flocks, um, possibly so that they can help block the wind for each other. Um, this is like true when they're foraging. So, you know, if it's a windy day and you're in an area where, you know, bar-tailed godwits might be around, um, you'll probably get lucky and see a lot of them together. All right, let's talk about their breeding. Um, so, like I said, they have high nest site fidelity, meaning that they return to the same exact areas to breed year after year. Juvenile birds, probably because they are unable to, you know, get in on the fun of breeding, um, they have less nest fidelity. They'll kind of travel around a little bit. Um, this is also true on the non-breeding grounds. Um, uh, adult birds, um, even on non-breeding grounds, even though they don't have a nest, you know, they'll kind of go to the same area, same well-defined area, while juveniles, you know, they got a little bit of wanderlust. They'll uh, wander around more. Usually there's other birds breeding in the vicinity um, where bar-tailed godwits are, like wimbrels, plovers, and skua. Um, these are termed umbrella species because they are all kind of under the same umbrella, um, subject to the same weather conditions and predators. To give a general snapshot of what bar-tailed godwit breeding looks like, I'm going to use a study conducted in Katokino in Norway, um, which really did a thorough job studying the courtship and mating of bar-tailed godwits. So this is going to be, you know, again, each subspecies kind of differs, but, you know, I'm going to use this one to kind of generalize uh, what it looks like. Um, these godwits arrived to their breeding grounds in mid-May. Males were observed performing ceremonial flights during this time, indicating this may be a courtship ritual. The ceremonial flights involved the male flying upward in a sort of jerky, zigzaggy motion that would last anywhere from 15 seconds to a minute, followed by a period of gliding, when the male would repeat the zigzag again. When he was done performing, the male would dive towards the ground and land, stretching his wings up high in like a look-at-me posture. Throughout the zigzag phase of the ceremonial flight, males were observed giving a song-like call. I apologize for the chainsaw noise, but the show must go on. <laughs> um, interestingly, a similar ceremonial flight is performed in all four godwit species, showing that this is likely a pretty old behavior that was present in their common ancestor. Uh, another way males get the attentions of females is by making the nest. Uh, godwits are ground nesting birds, and the male will just sort of scrape a bowl-shaped depression into the ground while the female watches. The breeding plumage also comes into play here. Um, remember, both male and females don that reddish-colored feathers um, in the uh, breeding season. Um, the males is much more bright than the females. Um, growing new feathers and forming the red pigments takes a lot of energy and nutrients. So studies have shown that the brightest colored birds are also consistently the heaviest and therefore the most fit and likely to survive migration. So brightness of breeding plumage is likely used by both males and females in selecting a strong mate. 
Another courtship flight is the pursuit flight, where the male chases the female. Interestingly, it is initiated by the female, and sometimes nearby unmated males will join in, um, perhaps hoping to outperform the mate's male and steal his girl. Um, I think it's kind of cool that, you know, the female issues, she's like, come on, chase me. <laughs> uh, males and females both also perform a variety of courtship postures. Um, the funniest one I saw involved the male running with his head pointed down and his tail up in the air with his wings drooped towards the ground. But the final foreplay is a posture where they'll both stand erect with their wings fluttering. Um, and this is like a signal like, all right, it's time. So right after that, the male will then mount the female. Um, and basically, he just jumps onto her back while she's standing, flutters his wings for about 30 seconds or so um, that it takes him to do the deed. Um, about two weeks after this, usually around the beginning of June, it's time for egg laying. Again, this is just in the Norwegian population. Other populations have slightly different egg-laying times. Um, around egg-laying time, the godwits seem a little stressed and territorial. Males will chase away other males that wander up close to the nest or their mates. Sometimes these will result in actual fights, uh, where two males will fly up into the air and flutter, trying to attack each other by pecking at their opponent's back. Uh, a normal clutch is about three to four eggs. Both mom and dad incubate the eggs, which take about three weeks to hatch. Um, Godwits really aren't used to dealing with predators. Um, this is why they do these epic migrations. Um, so they let people approach their nest pretty close before they flush. Uh, of course, don't do this if you see a Godwit nest. Just, you know, leave them alone. Um, but this is just what researchers have observed. Uh, when it comes time for hatching, about three weeks after egg laying, the baby birds... Um, pretty immediately leave the nest the, the day of hatching and then are brooded at night by mom while dad stands guard. These young godwits do need to grow up fast though because in just a few weeks they'll be setting off on their own epic migration. Uh, during a godwit's first migration they still have their juvenile plumage and are smaller in size than adults. In fact juveniles take up to four years to get their full adult plumage and reach sexual maturity. I feel like this episode's probably going to land on the long side, but I mean, it's got some pretty cool information. Uh, we're going to move on from breeding now and talk about feeding. Um, I'll get into evolution and then, you know, talk a bit about, you know, uh, parasites, predators, and the population to end up the show. Um, so being coastal birds, their diet is mainly aquatic animals found either on the surface or buried in the mud, such as bivalves and worms. Um, especially in the breeding season, they will also include insects and insect larvae on the menu. Uh, rarely they'll eat crustaceans. Godwits in Europe seem to especially prefer polychaete worms, um, also known as bristle worms. Um, if you're a fisherman, you probably know these guys. Um, they're sold in bait stores as blood worms. Um, Mud-dwelling aquatic worms do make up a really big part of their diet in general. Um, these worm species have some crazy names like lugworm, ragworm, and catworm. Meow. <laughs> um, godwits locate their prey by probing into the mud to feel for them, and also by looking for breathing holes or droppings. Um, if you've ever been like in an estuary at low tide, you've probably seen those little heaps of mud squiggles. Um, those are actually castings of worm poop. Um, and godwits use them to help them locate worm burrows. Um, an interesting fact is that since females are larger than males, they tend to bully them around a bit. On feeding grounds, males and females usually feed in separate locations, with females taking the more productive water line, while males are left to search for whatever they can find. 
since males have the less productive, uh, you know, feeding grounds, they tend to fight a little more and steal food from each other. The females, you know, they, they got all the food they need. So, you know, they're, they're pretty chill. Um, the small size also leads to males coming into clashes with other bird species. Um, wimbrels will routinely chase male bar-tailed godwits away um, so that they don't compete for food with them. But, like, you know, they leave the more larger, intimidating females alone. Uh, finally, because of their smaller bill size, males are also more limited than females into what worms and bivalves are able to reach buried in the mud. Females are able to forage in colder areas um, where the worms are buried deeper in the mud than males are. Males must forage in different areas with more shallow buried prey. Um, and just the bills of these birds are, are pretty incredible too. Uh, I read an article from the Royal Society of London back in 1865 uh, that kind of changed the way I think about bird bills. Um, looking at birds and the way they use their bills, you know, like woodpeckers hammering at trees or godwits jamming at the mud, um, you kind of picture bird beaks as these hard, unfeeling appendages like, you know, long fingernails. Um, but this guy, John Davy, closely examined bird bones and beaks and compared them. Um, he makes special mention about how the beak of the bar-tailed godwit is more flexible than you'd expect, especially the front part of it. While the outside is covered in a hard cuticle layer, the inside has lots of cells and blood vessels. Specifically, they have lots of herps corpsicles, which are nerve fibers that help them feel their prey under the mud. In fact, when they're feeding, godwits will actually flex open just the tip of their outer bill without opening it all the way to latch onto food. Um, it looks pretty crazy when you look at the illustrations. Uh, it's a little freaky. Um, it's almost like their lips are puckering up for a kiss. Um, I'm going to post a, a picture of this too. So yeah, bird beaks aren't just dead material like your hair or your fingernails, but rather living structures. Um, this makes sense. I mean, a bird's beak is basically its hands, um, and you know, Godwit's got to be able to feel for the food that they're searching for. In fact, birds of the family Scolopocidae, which contains long-billed shorebirds like our Godwits, along with dunlins, curlews, and sandpipers, have special brain regions devoted to their sensitive bills. Dissections using electrons to stimulate the bill and observe for firings in the brain have found an enlarged region of the forebrain that responds to stimulation of the beak tip and receives intervention from the trigeminal nerves, nerves that provide sensation to the face. Um, if you've ever heard of the medical condition Bell's palsy or trigeminal neuralgia, um, those are the nerves that are being referred to here. We humans have a pretty large part of these nerves in our brains devoted to our lips, you know, since we use them for speech. Scolopocidae birds, like the godwit, um, are sort of the same, except instead of talking, their lip-like beak structures are for feeling for worms. Um, experiments mapping the nerve areas on the bill suggest that they can discriminate between objects as small as one millimeter in size. Um, not all bar-tailed godwits feed exactly the same. Uh, the two subspecies Tamarinus and Laponica, which both feed in the Wadden Sea of the Netherlands at the same time, have different feeding strategies. Tamarinus breeds in Siberia and stops over to feed in the Wadden Sea on its way to winter in East Africa, while Laponica winters in the Wadden Sea after breeding in northern Scandinavia. You know, these are those leapfrog ones that I talked about earlier. Um, since Laponica doesn't have as far of a migration, it does what's called an energy-minimizing feeding strategy, basically a slow and steady approach, um, where it feeds but also spends a lot of time preening, molting, and looking out for predators. Tamarinus, you know, this one's, it's going farther, so it's trying to gobble up as much food as possible. They're hustling at low tide to grab whatever food items they can, um, and they even go into coastal meadows to find extra food items. 
This puts them at a higher risk of predation um, and costs a lot of energy investment, but they end up getting more food overall and secure larger food items. A final really cool fact, um, sometimes the Godwit food bites back. Uh, I read a paper from 2012 on the Dandong Yalu Jiang Wetland Reserve in China, where two male Godwits were observed apparently getting their toes clamped on by clams while they waded through the shallow water. In each instance, the Godwits had to wait two to three minutes for the clams to open back up before they could fly away. And in one case, the toe of one of the Godwits was obviously injured. Oh my god. <laughs> That's awful. They're just wading through, you know, probably trying to like eat some clams. And then, you know, one of them clamps down on its toe and like breaks its toe. Um, there's even an ancient Chinese proverb that talks about this saying, when the sandpiper and the clam grapple, it is the fisherman that profits. <laughs> I want to see that in a fortune cookie. Hang in there, y'all. We're getting to the end of the show. Let's talk about evolution of godwits. Um, godwits are part of the shorebird family Chadriformes, um, which first formed in the Cretaceous period as far back as 90 million years ago. Uh, we talked a little bit about this order in my puffin episode. Um, it splits into three major groups, the wader birds, which the godwits are part of, gulls, and ox, which includes puffins. Godwits are part of that wader group, um, specifically in the family Scolopacidae. Um, this family is typically known as the sandpiper family and contains some similar looking species like godwits, turnstones, dowitchers, and curlews. However, it also contains the forest-dwelling woodcock and the much more duck-like phalarope. The many diverse Scolopacidae species likely all diverged from one common ancestor that was present during the late Cretaceous period around 70 million years ago and had recently diverged from the Jocanas, the seed snipes, and the painted snipe ancestors. It wasn't until after the KT extinction event that wiped out the dinosaurs that Scolopacidae really began to diverge. Without those pesky toothed dinos around, wading birds were free to fill in all the now vacant niches. Remember how I talked about those super sensitive bills of the Scolopacidae? Um, there's actually a theory that one of the reasons they survived the KT extinction event is when that giant asteroid struck the Earth, you know, it kicked up a bunch of dust, blocked out the sun. Um, they didn't, really didn't need to rely on vision to find their food. You know, they could use those sensitive bills to still locate it. The Scolopacidae family is further divided into groups, um, with Godwits being in the Numanini group, um, a tribe of 13 closely related wader species. These wader species are at the base of the Scolopacidae tree, meaning they likely evolved pretty early on. Um, the curlews with their downward curving bill, um, opposite of the upward curving godwit bill, remember, um, and the upland sandpipers are in this group, um, and they're sister species to the godwits. There's actually a fossil of a species called Limosa gypsorum um, from France that is about 35 million years old and has characteristics of both curlews and godwits, suggesting it may be a common ancestor of both of them. Um, and this may be around the time the two genuses split. The first for sure godwit species though doesn't pop up in the fossil record until about 6 million years ago in Lompoc, California. Um, it's a now extinct godwit species called Limosa vanrosemi. Um, however, by that time all four of our modern godwit species likely existed. 
Um, it's pretty likely that the bar-tailed godwit and its closest relative, the black-tailed godwit, had already separated by then. Um, and the two North American godwits, the marbled godwit and the Hudsonian godwit, um, they did split after the um, bar-tailed and black-tailed. But, you know, they were probably already around six million years ago. Um, one zoom tree of life has the bar-tailed and black-tailed splitting 12 million years ago and the Hudsonian and marbled splitting 9 million years ago. Um, however, like I've said before on the show, I don't know if I really trust one zoom. I can't really find their sources, but uh, whatever. We'll take it with a grain of salt. Um, in general, the formation of the different godwit species and the different subspecies of bar-tailed godwits is due to climatic shifts. Uh, for much of this bird's evolution, the climate was much warmer than it is today. In the past 1.5 million years, the climate has become colder and more like today, but has been marked by periodic ice ages with glacial advances and retreats. Uh, as we've gone over on the show before, glacial advances cause populations to become fragmented and genetically distant. Probably the separation of the marbled and Hudsonian godwits, you know, happened when big glaciers covered more, most of North America and they were, you know, separated into very distinct populations and then drifted apart. So, like I said, there are five subspecies of bar-tailed godwit, but there may actually be six. Um, I read a paper from October of 2021 um, out of the Pavel Tamkovich lab in Moscow, Russia, um, that studied that Siberian breeding, you know, Tamarensis um, population. They found distinct phenotypical differences between populations that wintered in West Africa and those that wintered in the Middle East, um, suggesting that they're actually two separate subspecies. So I, I'm not sure if that's fully been updated yet from five to six subspecies, but yeah, there's probably six subspecies. All right, cool. So that's their evolution. Let's bring it home, talking about some their population, some diseases. Um, like all birds, and especially birds that feed on aquatic prey, bar-tailed godwits have parasites. Um, I found a study out of Korea that found nematodes called Schistorophus cirripedesmi in the gullet of a dead bar-tailed godwit. They even examined these nematodes under an electron microscope and included terrifying pictures. Um, this thing looks like a walrus. It's got like tusk that it uses to latch onto the digestive tract. Um, interesting, this is the first time this parasite has been found in Korea. Um, there were several other, you know, obscure cestodes and nematodes that are found in godwits. Um, I won't belabor you with their names. Uh, I can barely pronounce them. Um, but kind of the cool point here is that uh, bar-tailed godwits, you know, they're these super long-distance migrators, but they act as potential super spreaders for parasites. When they travel tens of thousands of miles, the parasites come with them and potentially spread to parts of the world they would have never gone otherwise. Uh, remember earlier I talked about how, you know, brighter breeding plumage, you know, is correlated with fitness in birds. Um, a study conducted in the Wadden Sea of the Netherlands found that brighter female breeding plumage was correlated with lower infestations with parasitic worms, such as tapeworms, flukes, and spiny-headed worms. This makes sense. These individuals were likely able to perform some of the extra tuning up molts we talked about earlier because they were more fit. And being more fit, they're better at fighting off infectious parasites. Predators do go after um, godwits, um, especially known bird hunters like the peregrine falcon. Um, I found a cool paper, again, out of the Dutch Wadden Sea in 2011, where an all-white bar-tailed godwit was seen. Well, actually, it looked all white, but really it was more of a very light brown um, because it didn't actually have albinism or leucicism mutation. Um, it actually had what's called a brown mutation. 
Uh, this mutation is so called because it's most notable in blackbirds like crows or jackdaws. Um, when they have this mutation, it's in a molecule called eumelanin, um, which absorbs light to make a black color. Um, but instead, it produces an unoxidized form of eumelanin when they have this mutation that reflects a little bit of light, resulting in a brown color instead of a black color. Interestingly, uh, in birds, the male has two copies of this gene, while the female only has one. So it makes this mutation almost exclusively confined to females. Um, well, this white female godwit unfortunately didn't fare out too well. Um, she stuck out like a sore thumb, white thumb, and was targeted amongst other godwits by a peregrine falcon who ate her. Godwits live for an average of about 10 years, um, and their worldwide population is estimated at just over a million birds. However, there is a lot of, you know, concern over the populations, um, especially individual, you know, subspecies populations. Um, wetland conservation is really, really important for bar-tailed godwits. Uh, remember, they have high site fidelity um, and pretty much go back to the same places year after year. Um, in fact, it's been proposed that the population of bar-tailed godwits is currently bottlenecked uh, based on the few remaining undisturbed tidal areas that they use for breeding and non-breeding grounds. If these areas were disturbed, it is unlikely that the population of godwits would be able to relocate. Hell, they just lost close to 50% of their body mass migrating. Like, you know, if they show up to a place and all of a sudden it's been turned into condos, they're, they're not going to go fly off and find somewhere else. They're probably going to just die. Uh, the Yellow Sea is probably the most threatened godwit habitat right now. This is, you know, located between China and Korea. Um, it's a coastal area that's at high risk of development and population. It's a critical stopover and refueling ground for lots of birds, but specifically two subspecies of bar-tailed godwits, the Bowery subspecies we talked about earlier, um, and the Mensberry subspecies also that breeds in the Arctic of eastern Russia. A healthy yellow sea is critical to the survival of both of these subspecies. Uh, in fact, the building of a seawall in 2011 was linked with crashes in populations of ghost shrimps and bivalves, two major sources of food for godwits. Um, the men's berry subspecies, which stops over at the yellow sea during both stages of their migration, um, is actually declining at a greater rate than the Bowery subspecies, probably because they rely on the Yellow Sea a little bit more, and so are therefore more affected by its environmental degradation. I found a study in 2021 conducted in the Yellow Sea estuaries that estimated a survival rate of 71% for Mensbury bar-tailed godwits. Um, this was down from as high as 91% in previous years. Global warming also adversely affects bar-tailed godwits. You know, part of the reason they do these epic migrations is so that they can raise their young in areas with relatively few predators. Um, but also very few blood-sucking insects that can quickly kill a young chick. Uh, I read a paper from Nature in 2018 that discussed how with a warming climate, the range of crane flies has steadily climbed northwards. In order to try to beat the crane flies, bar-tailed godwits uh, have attempted to arrive earlier in the Arctic by spending less time at their staging grounds refueling. This means that they don't have as much fat and muscle mass when they set out on migration and have a greater chance of dying. And I'm sorry for the jet noise, guys. I'm almost done. <laughs> the jets are like dive bombing me. I, I think that they know I'm here and are using me for a training exercise. <laughs>
Um, generally, though, the breeding and non-breeding grounds of godwits are pretty safe, and adults especially suffer very low mortality while on these grounds. Freezing rains can sometimes cause die-offs, but these events are relatively rare. Generally, though, the breeding and non-breeding grounds of godwits are pretty safe, and adults especially suffer very low mortality while on these grounds. Freezing rains can sometimes cause die-offs, but these events are relatively rare. Deaths during migration are really the big killer of these birds, and since it happens over such a large area, it's a little bit of a black box as to what exactly causes godwit deaths. And uh, they do suffer from kleptoparasitism, you know, other bird species stealing food from them. Uh, I talked about the wimbrels bullying the uh, males earlier, um, but also gulls will steal from, you know, both males and females. And even though, you know, they breed... Ooh... That wind again. Wouldn't want to be a godwit flying against that wind. And even though they breed way up in Alaska, you know, you'd think that they'd be far from human pollution, but no, our Bowery subspecies is still exposed to contaminants. Studies of godwit eggshells have shown high levels of zinc, um, higher than, you know, is normal compared to like other bird shore species. Um, and also DDD, a metabolite of the infamous DDT, um, has been found in godwit eggshells, um, you know, showing that this terrible chemical is, you know, still around and with us. So that's all I got on Bartow Godwits for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a lot and, you know, really respect the epic migration of these guys. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky the Stone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Tim's on the ground in the concrete jungle, I might get